Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here with Paul Lind, a doctor who worked in the psych emergency department at SF General for 24 years. He explains why the city's mental health care system is so broken and how the state's new conservatorship law could help. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So you were an emergency room psychiatrist at SF General for 25 years, correct? Correct, yes. That must have been a really stressful job. Can you kind of describe what a typical day was like at the psych emergency room at SF General? Yeah, so I would come in and there'd usually be just one other psychiatrist on duty. I would say on an average day there might be 20 patients waiting for us. And um, I would say, you know, some of those folks had been there for already 24 hours. So when you get there, you have to already begin to sort of look at where do people need to go? Um, what should we do with in- individual patients? But of course, as soon as you the clock starts ticking, you can have new patients being brought in. You know, there are times when that be four or five come in a half an hour. So what happens is sometimes you have to turn your attention away from the person who's already been there for a long time and turn it over to someone who's who's just been brought in mm-hmm. to the psych emergency. And did any particular patient stand out for you? What were some of the behaviors you saw oh. or characters you might have met? I mean, it's uh, it's almost uh, too numerous to, to recount. But I mean, a t- I would say typical, uh, unfortunately, a typical patient would be someone who would be brought in by the police who had been assaultive or aggressive in public. Frequently, one day we had someone was swinging a pipe, someone was swinging a bat, someone was swinging a bicycle, and I was waiting for the next person to be swinging a baby. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but these are often people who are intoxicated on intravenous meth, amphetamine, uh-huh. and or psychotic from either untreated bipolar, untreated schizophrenia, and oftentimes both. So I would say maybe a third of the patients brought in, you know, immediately need to be medicated and sometimes even placed in four-point restraints, that there was that level of violence um, as soon as people would, would hit the door. Did they seem to know where they were and what was going on? Or No, nah, those folks, no. I mean, they're usually pretty pretty far gone when they're in that state of mind. And, um, you know, because we, we're also responsible to make sure that they're not medically acutely medically ill, so we get vital signs right away mm-hmm. um, to make sure, you know, check blood sugars, things like that, things that can present as behavioral emergencies but no people were usually pretty you know and some of them you couldn't you can't even have a conversation with i mean we try to talk people down initially i mean we don't want to jump immediately to giving them an injection so we do try to engage them and talk to them but a lot of those folks at least were too too far gone to do mm-hmm. that in the moment right um, you described some neighborhoods in San Francisco as being like open-air insane asylums. Uh, why has the problem gotten so bad? Would you say it's a mental health problem, a drug problem, an alcohol problem, or all of the above? Well, I think it's, I think it's a very complex uh, question to answer. Um, I think that there's multiple variables. Um, I mean, I think one that maybe is not the most prominent, but San Francisco is a magnet for people of all different stripes. And um, I, I have a patient I've known for a long time that told me recently, he said, he's a real character, he said, you know, San Francisco, the city needs to stop sending the message out about the summer of love, right? The summer of love is over, folks. <laughs> because what he sees, and he's a native, and he's having trouble getting services, such as housing, he's living in a U-Haul truck. Oh, my God. And he, and he said, and he's not really bitter about it, but he says people come from all over the United States thinking it's some sort of 
you know, spa here or that some sort of nirvana here and, and find out that it's very expensive to live here. There's a lot of, you know, drug use going on. So part of it is I think San Francisco is is a draw. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the burden for the city really is what do you do with so many people who are coming from elsewhere? And so, again, I think as we've been reading, which is true, this is kind of a regional and a national problem. But I do think there are other variables other than San Francisco being um, a magnet. One um, definitely is the relative lack of access to drug treatment Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. It's a really difficult issue because a lot of the people that we're treating, like, for example, the folks who are injecting meth, you know, they're or injecting heroin and meth together or injecting heroin. I mean, these are not folks are at a point where they're ready to quit. So I think that there's a lot of cynicism among um, health officials and the citizenry about helping people get off drugs. Um, Having said that, I know that there's hope to be had in terms of treating addiction and that we need to catch people when they're ready. And it's really interesting. I remember way back when Willie Brown um, talked about treatment on demand back in the day. And I think, again, I was sort of new in the city at the time, and internally I was kind of rolling my eyes going, you know, that's a great idea, but we're, we're not set up for that. But I think, you know, he's absolutely right that there, you do catch people, and it's not that hard to figure out who's close to being ready to stop and who isn't. Mm-hmm. So, But I think when you have somebody, you're sitting with somebody, you know, we're, I'm talking about the next day, they've already slept, they've already eaten, you have that conversation, they're like, I'm ready to quit, I can't handle this life anymore. And so then you have to have a conversation about, well, what's what's available? And I think we could do a better job. I know that there are agencies who are Health Right 360, there's lots of, you know, there are places in the city for people to get help, but I think that we need to make it more accessible. And then the last thing I think is, Honestly, the way that the civil rights laws are written um, in California, it's difficult to make people accept treatment against their will. And so I'm talking more about untreated psychotic disorders such as severe schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, that it's difficult to take those people off the street because of the way the the treatment laws are written. Mm -hmm. Having said that, those laws were written in the 70s and... What's not widely known is that there was also, um, so the civil libertarians were behind those laws, but the most conservative Republicans were as well because their motivation was to save money. Because the reality is it's expensive to provide these kind of services. So it's not just a civil rights law. It's also, do we have the will and the finances to actually take care of these folks? So I think there are multiple variables So how does the process work now if someone is acting violently and insanely on a city street, a police officer can't take them to SF General? Sure. Uh, So then what happens? So so the police have a lot of discretion when they um, respond to any situation, and essentially they have the option of doing nothing. They have the option of arresting someone. They have the option of taking them to the regular ER at the Mm -hmm. General, and they have the option of taking them to the psych ER. Now, sometimes those ERs are on diversion, so they end up at other private hospitals, which is a whole other problem. But um, what happens when a police officer decides to bring someone to the psychiatric emergency is they have the legal power to write a 5150 hold, and the 5150 is a California legal code for involuntary mental health evaluation. 72-hour hold, the criteria are either suicidal, 
homicidal or unable to care for yourself due to psychiatric illness. So basically those patients are brought in. Um, we take their vital signs. Uh, we try to get some history. Hopefully we already have a records on them available to us. And so immediately they're evaluated for their safety. And if there's someone who's cooperative and not potentially violent or potentially injurious to themselves, then they undergo an evaluation process, mm-hmm. um, usually two-step. Usually you have um, a clinician who's often a nurse, psychiatric nurse, through the first evaluation. They'll come and confer with a psychiatrist who will then do an evaluation and basically put her heads together to decide you know, whether to keep them or whether to try to admit them to the inpatient unit or whether they can go. Um, but part of it also is a medical evaluation. So a lot of the people come in have chest pain or a fever or some acute medical issue. And in that case, they go to the medical emergency room. So the average length of stay, I think, has gone down over the years. I mean, when I what first... What is it now? Do you know? Well, I think in the psych emergency itself, I, th- I think it's probably closer to 8 to 12 hours now. Oh, wow. I believe when I started, it was 24 hours or more. We'd have people in there for two or three days, which in an ER setting is not a great way to fly. So... Um, but what happens is the inpatient beds are usually full. And so if, if you think someone needs to be inpatient in the inpatient psych unit, they often have to wait a day or two to be admitted. So the people who are less acute but still perhaps needing admission, they may have to wait three or four days. So the, the reality is is you end up having to discharge those people because you can't keep them mm-hmm. that long. And so, um, so basically, I mean, what we do is try to calm people down get them a shower, get them some food, you know, get them some medication, sort of get, get them calmed down and sort of take care of their basic needs and then, and then go from there. Uh-huh. So You likened it to um, kind of being like a car wash. Can you explain that metaphor? <laughs> yeah, well, there was, there was a nurse I used to work with said, this place is just like an expensive car wash that you got your chow, you got your shower, you got your medication and you got some sleep and now it's time to get out the door. So um, I, I think uh, sometimes it does sort of come down to that, 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 I mean, really the, it's not really that funny because basically what happens is I think a lot of these people get discharged and then they end up bouncing back in, in a week or less and mm-hmm. repeat the process. And I mean, frankly, a lot of it has to do with um, substance abuse, I think, um, and, and poverty, lack of housing, lack of access to you know, a bed to sleep in, a place to wash up, a place to go. So, mm-hmm. um, what percentage of patients that came to you at SF General had just strictly mental health issues versus drug addictions or alcohol addictions? I would say that at least half had both mm-hmm. a psychiatric and a comorbid addiction as well. I mean, the most common comorbid would be um, intravenous methamphetamine, but the next most common would be alcohol, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say at least half had both, perhaps even more. Um, probably only about a quarter have, you know, psychiatric illness with no substance use mm. problem. And then frankly, there's another 10 to 20% that really only have the substance use disorder that, again, you know, things like methamphetamine and cocaine stimulants will make you psychotic. And so it looks just like, like some, being high on meth looks just like bipolar mania i mean it's oh, wow. it's indistinguishable so but um i would say you know if you take that 10 or 20 percent and the half that probably two-thirds of patients have significant 
substance use as part of their presentation. So yeah, and you argue that there just aren't enough places to send these people to, right? Other than back on the streets. Um, can you talk about how many psychiatric beds there are and what we would actually need to make a dent in this problem? Well, it's. I mean, again, this is it's complex, and a lot of it, I think, has to do with with finances. Um, but right now, roughly, there are around twenty acute inpatient beds at the general. There's another 20 subacute that are folks that are waiting for a placement. Um, and then there are uh, St. Francis, uh, UCSF, and uh, California Pacific are the three other places in the city that have inpatient psych mm-hmm. units. Um, it's not clear what's going to happen to CPMC's inpatient psych units when their new hospital opens. And in fact, they may disappear or go somewhere else in the Bay Area. So basically, inpatient psych beds for acute stabilization, they're, they're disappearing. And this is part of a trend that's been nationwide that really started all the way back 50 years ago with, with deinstitutionalization, mm-hmm. that the number of acute inpatient, not only did the sort of long-term state hospital beds disappear, but there are fewer inpatient beds as well. Um, so the reality is, is the inpatient beds are very expensive. Um, as someone explained it to me, as anything in those four walls of a hospital is very expensive and a lot of this is because of the regulatory climate that we live in that it's expensive to follow all the rules mm-hmm. and pay your staff so that really the the challenge would be is for cities to find less expensive ways to manage these patients in my opinion though in san francisco we need more of the expensive acute inpatient beds um, because i don't think we have enough of them and I don't think we keep patients long enough to stabilize them mm-hmm. before we send them to the next So they're just step. cycling in and out and in and out. Yeah. I mean, the admissions, you know, a lot of them are three or four days, and basically it's not enough time to stabilize mm-hmm. someone. Um, but basically what happens is they're considered non-acute by day four, and this is very important because Medi-Cal will stop paying for the admission day four. So if you're going to keep them day six, seven, and eight, those will be you know, basically the hospital will be losing money to keep them. So the question is, does the whole system need to change in terms of how we decide how long length the stay is in the hospital? Mm -hmm. What the hospital will say and what the Department of Public Health will say, and they're at least partially correct, we need places to send people from the hospital that are less expensive. And so um, places like long-term residential care facilities like the 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 MRF um, or the R facility at the general is a great example. If we had more of that level of care, I think we could offload the inpatient units with a good place to send people, and then that would free up the beds for people who are coming in the front door. So mm-hmm. it's really a front door. Psych emergency is the front door, and leaving the inpatient unit is like the back door. If mm-hmm. we could have better back door options, we could free it up for all those people that I was seeing on the front end of the process. Got it. Can you talk about conservatorship programs and whether you think our, the current California state law is good enough on that? Well, I mean, I th- I welcome the uh, efforts of um, Scott Weiner and uh, the mayor and also Raphael Mandelman has mm-hmm. been on board and Hillary Rohner and I think other people in the city are, are on that issue. I welcome that. I do think um, it will be helpful. I think part of what they're focusing on is getting really the sickest of the sick Um, off the street and into a safe, structured environment. Um, 
the numbers are pretty small. I mean, it's probably, you know, I think with the changes of maybe be taking 50 people off and it doesn't seem like a lot, but I think it's a very humane thing to do. And in fact, these are the patients who some of them call 911, you know, eight times a day when they're out on the street and I, and they're being pulled into the jail, they're being pulled into the regular ER. So I think not only is it humane, I think there will be cost savings, Mm -hmm. but it's a lot to, to take away someone's right to sort of move about freely for six months to a year. And a conservatorship is really in that sort of range of six months to a year. So that from a civil rights perspective, it can be a little bit harder to justify when what I'm thinking is if you can keep people for 10 days instead of three days, okay, you're taking away their right to move freely for 10 days, but it's, um, we could, do that on a much wider widespread basis and actually spread it around a bit more mm-hmm. so but i i think it's welcome and i think it's um it's a good thing to try great and uh, you arrived in san francisco in the late 1980s for your residency program um from your perspective has there ever been a time when city hall was really on top of the, these issues or has it always been kind of lacking um you know, I have, I mean, from my perspective, it's the programs change, the acronyms change, um, you know, the priorities change. Um, I, you know, I don't really think that City Hall has ever had a handle on, on this problem. Um, I think it's going to be harder now than ever just because of the numbers mm-hmm. and because of the income inequality. And it, this really is an issue. It's a socioeconomic issue as much as anything else that... Uh, these folks cannot afford to live here, and so they're least capable of caring for themselves on the streets. Shelter system, well-meaning, but it's it's pretty disastrous when you talk to individual patients about what their experiences are like in a shelter, not conducive. So, um, no, I mean, I just I feel like the problem has gotten a lot worse, and I think the challenge is is even greater. And I, you know, you have people. I I was sort of gobsmacked and reading Gavin Newsom's comments from a week or two ago saying that the solution is not spending more money. Well, right. it's easy enough for him to say um, when he's running for governor and not running the city <laughs> anymore, but um, then what is, you know, what is the solution? So I, I don't know. I mean, I just, to, you know, I hate to be sound cynical, but I mean, I think from my perspective, working in the psych emergency room, it always seems like the world is falling apart and it always has so hmm. you kind of lose your perspective when you're yeah. working on the front line i'm curious what you said about how um, mental health patients have a really hard time in homeless shelters can you talk about what they experience well there? i mean i i think that well part of it there's a lot of mentally ill people in the homeless shelter i mean i think in general i mean one is uh, some of them can be really disruptive to people without psychiatric illness and really no fault of their own but mm-hmm. because of their untreated symptoms they can be it's unnerving i think to be around people who are you know hallucinating and talking to themselves and sometimes paranoid um but i i really think it's also about keeping track of your belongings um how do you feel safe in the shelter and in fact is that even paranoia to say i don't feel safe in the shelter cuz your life and your belongings are not right. they're not safe in that mm-hmm setting and I, I've always thought about this since I was a medical student like why do we put all of those people who are having such a hard time together in a small space you know just like an yeah. inpatient psych ward it's not optimal either so I just I you know one of the um, 
I worked with a colleague, Dr. John Rouse, for a long time in psych emergency, and he passed away a few years ago of leukemia. He was an exceptional doctor and a very, very wise about planning. And he, he was saying this 20 years ago is that we need shelters dedicated to the psychiatrically ill mm. and have them staffed with a psychiatric nurse, some social workers, have a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner consulting essentially to put them in it's, it's not exactly a treatment setting but it, it's relatively inexpensive way to provide some structure housing and treatment i think this you know this is what they do at the support services hotel already a lot hmm. of i will give the city you know it sounds like i'm just saying how bad things are but i think the city has worked very hard department of public health has worked hard to provide housing for the mentally ill and actually give them things like case managers and access to medical care. I mean, mm -hmm. I, there's a lot of things the city has done well. I just think at this point, it's the numbers. People just just keep coming. And last question, if you were mayor for, let's say, six months, what would you do to make a real impact on these issues? Boy, I'm not sure. I just, <laughs> I just talked to a Tough friend. Question. I talked to a friend of mine I used to work with here in the city who um, now works for Medi-Cal in Sacramento, and he was telling me about some of how a lot of things are kind of just written into law where your hands are kind of tied. And mm -hmm. I didn't quite understand that you would think that our leaders would have more discretion, particularly with spending. But what would I do? Six months as mayor? We can pick. You can change the I don't think I could. I'm <laughs> almost positive I can't take it. For one thing, I, I, hate, I hate meetings with oh, passion. Um, and I don't. I'm either um, too acquiescent or too angry. Um, <laughs> anyway, what would I do? I mean, I would um, I would have more inpatient beds. I mean, yeah. I guess I don't know how I would pay for it, but I also, and I don't know how the increased amount of money we're spending on the homeless, how you can take a chunk of that and put it into that. I would probably double the amount of inpatient mm -hmm beds and I would keep people longer. Mm -hmm. I think I would reinstitute some form of the state hospital system. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly that's not, that's a broken system. But what I found fascinating is that 90% of the patients at Napa State Hospital are forensic patients. They're, they're penitentiary patients. Oh. So basically, um, people have to get deep into the criminal justice system to get that long-term psychiatric for real care. care. Yeah. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? Wow. And, it's, and they're, those patients are twice as expensive as the civilly committed. So there's something is, is really broken there. But I would increase inpatient beds, and yeah. I would increase the length of stay. And then I would work on developing more, you know, more cheaper, inexpensive services um, at the same time. Yeah. So, But I think the bureaucratic... Um, challenges are unbelievable there's just a lot of it's just a log jam of of things and then yeah. the political the political atmosphere as well so i would i so you never want to be mayor i don't ever <laughs> want to be mayor i don't even want to be the boss at home my wife wears the <laughs> pants there so anyway great well thank you so much for joining me today it was sure. fun to talk to you yeah thanks for having me this show is part of the san francisco chronicle podcast network the show is produced by Dominic Fracasa. For more City Hall coverage, you can follow Dominic on Twitter at Dominic Fracasa and me at HNightSF. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com.